Hi everyone and welcome to this special episode of A World to Win. This week we are very excitingly launching our new format where we're going to have shorter shows that are focused more on current events that are more discursive. You will hear a bit more of me, whether or not that is a good thing or a bad thing, I will let you decide. And yeah, we're going to be discussing, you know, stuff that's going on in the news. So this week, I have the brilliant Gary Stevenson, um, who is a former trader and an equality economist, um, and who has a brilliant YouTube channel called Gary's Economics that I would recommend you all sign up to. There is a link in the description to the episode. And we are talking about the cost of living crisis. So we're talking about, you know, inflation, where it's coming from, who's being most harmed by inflation, and also who is benefiting from rising prices and what kinds of rising prices and how we can tackle this rather than just simply saying, let's raise interest rates and make the poor pay more for their debt servicing. What else can we do? Gary has some fascinating insights and very passionate opinions on this. So I'm really pleased to have him on as our first guest in this new format. And do let us know what you think and if you have any comments or questions. Now, the way that we are pushing through and like changing up the format and um, hopefully at some point delivering you some new content, some video content as well, is we're using what we get from the Patreon to try and build and grow this. So please do sign up to become a patron. And if you do sign up to become a patron, you can get the chance to feed into this process much more of us kind of switching up the way that we do the podcast. So yeah, make sure that you sign up. It's patreon.com slash a world to win pod. We are still going to be doing the classic a world to win long form interviews, the hour long shows where we interview academics, politicians, and just have a much broader discussion. But we are switching up, as I said, every two weeks with this shorter, more discursive format. And yeah, I hope that you guys like it. Please do let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any ideas for guests who you'd like to see me interview either in this shorter format or in the longer format. And enjoy the episode. Um, And make sure you share, tell all your friends, like us on social media, share us on social media, and let us know what you think. Here is Gary. Hello, everyone. And I am here with Gary Stevenson, who is a former trader and now an inequality economist. Uh, You guys have to sign up to his brilliant YouTube channel where he explains in a very accessible, but also very interesting tone, a lot of really important economic issues. And that's Gary's Economics on YouTube. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gary. How are you doing? I'm okay, Grace. A little bit uh, frustrated with the economic situation, but uh, I'm good. Well, yeah, I mean, you were just saying this. Can you tell me why you're so frustrated about what's going on right now? You know, we had a massive, enormous economic crisis, the biggest economic crisis is the Great Depression. And we literally fixed that by printing an enormous amount of money, £450 billion. That's £10,000 per person. And then afterwards, we get a massive explosion in inflation. And everyone is just like, where the fuck did this inflation come from? And it's, um, it's driving me mad, to be honest, because, you know, I, I wrote articles and I made videos right at the beginning of the crisis saying, if you deal with this crisis just by printing money, you will get a massive explosion in inflation. And now the inflation's come and everybody has been totally taken by surprise. Okay, well, let's talk about the inflation because um, I'm, I'm going to mention as well this report from NEF, um, from the New Economics Foundation, which I'll put in the link um, in the description to this episode. But obviously, we've seen national official statistics, inflation is a, a consumer price inflation is about 5.5% at the moment. That's a 30-year high. 
We're expecting it to peak in April at 7%, which is just massive. The Resolution Foundation saying that it could, you know, get pushed up above 8%, depending on how things pan out in Ukraine. That's going to have a big impact on food prices as well. So food banks are going to be distributing way more money. And NEF has done this new analysis, which looks at the minimum income standard. So uh, just like the minimum amount that people need to just to be able to purchase the basic essentials. I mean, they've said that they think about 23.4 million people, so that's about 34% of the population, are going to be pushed below this standard as a result of what's going on. And they could be falling short by anything up to £8,600 a year. And that includes nearly 50% of children who are going to be living in households unable to provide basic, decent standard of living. Now, a massive part of this obviously is being driven by energy prices, by fuel prices. And this isn't like ordinary inflation because there's not really that much you can do to avoid it. You can't substitute, you know, like your fuel costs for a different kind. You can't change the energy composition of what you consume. Definitely not over the short term. Over the long term, you might think, okay, I'll put a solar panel on my house or retrofit or whatever. But that's only if you own your house. It's only if you have the cash to be able to do that. This is something that basically acts like a tax over the short term and particularly on less well-off families. And it is just really, really disastrous for a lot of people in the UK and a lot of people all around the world, especially when we're thinking about food prices. So talk to us a little bit about like who's going to be most affected by this, how they're going to be affected, what the macroeconomic impact of it will be, what the impact on poverty is going to be. Yeah, I think you've, You've hit the nail on the head there when you say that it's poor and, and ordinary people that spend by far the largest share of their income on the things which are going up the most, which is um, energy and food prices here. So, you know, headline figures like 5.5% CPI, 7% CPI, they actually massively underestimate the damage that this is going to do because things like food and energy are going up way more than that. And it's the poorest people who spend the biggest share of their incomes on those things. And the reality of the situation is ordinary families, their basic cost of living is going up two, three, four thousand pounds a year. And for a lot of ordinary families, they do not have two, three, four thousand pounds a year income left over. So I think it's worth just spending a little time for people listening to think about what is this going to mean to these families? You know, if you're a family that does not have three thousand pounds a year left over, and now your food and energy is costing three thousand pounds more, what does that mean? You know, that means missed rent payments, missed mortgage payments. Mm. It means people becoming homeless. Like, I think it's really worth seeing and thinking, this is a genuine disaster. It is a disaster. People are going to lose their homes. People mm. are going to go hungry. People are going to not be able to heat their homes. It is a serious, serious disaster here, what's happening. It's, it's easy to miss this as well, because I like remember when we had this discussion about the universal credit uplift and the £20 a week uplift, which was obviously gotten rid of by Rishi Sunak. Funnily enough, this research from NEF suggests that the cost of living is going to rise about £20 a week for a lot of families. Um, And that's exactly the amount that was removed when we had that cancellation of the uplift. And a lot of the discussion, especially among, you know, people um, in the political class, among politicians was like, oh, it's just £20 a week. Like they would spend that amount on like, you know, their like lunch at Pret or whatever, maybe not Pret, yeah. but you know, it's something along those lines. And they just do not get that that is the difference between, you know, being able to like feed your family or not being able to like, pay your rent, being able to like repay your debt as well. A lot of these families are in massive amount of like high interest debt. So, yeah. I mean, should we be thinking first and foremost about saying get the uplift back? 
I think we should be thinking first and foremost about how families are going to feed their kids and heat mm. their homes. That That is genuinely what is on the line here. Genuinely what is on the line here. And um, yeah, I mean, we should be looking at getting money back into the pockets of ordinary families. It's important to emphasize it's not just the poorest who are going to suffer here. You know, there's a lot of ordinary families in the middle who are going to be really, really squeezed here. And that's going to have knock on economic effects, right? If you take £3,000 out of the disposable income of an ordinary family, well, that's all of the disposable income, right? You're literally taking 100% of the disposable income of an ordinary family. That means ordinary families can't afford to go on holiday anymore, to go to the pub anymore, to go to the cinema anymore. You know, they, they can't afford all of their regular spending. So the knock on economic effects are going to be massive. But we need to prioritise how do we support these people? And the other thing which is driving me absolutely insane is the lack of discussion about what an unbelievably enormous amount of money has been accumulated by the rich and the super mm. rich in the last two years. Uh, we're all sitting here like, how on earth are we going to deal with this? How, how on earth can we possibly deal with this crisis? And at the same time, the riches have increased their wealth at the fastest ever rate in the history of the country. The average billionaire in this country accumulated £630 million increase in their wealth in the first one year of COVID alone. It's a 22% increase in their wealth. The rich have never, ever in history of this country made as much money in such a short time. And yet here we are, ordinary families can't feed their kids and we're scrapping around like, oh, what, what can we do? What could we possibly do? Like never has the answer been more obvious in the history of economics. And it's, it's driving me insane. Like You have a crisis from which the rich not only do not contribute, but profit enormously. Then the poor can't afford to feed their kids. And we say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. It must be because of Vladimir Putin. It's, it's ridiculous what's happening. Re- really, it's, it's driving me mad. So, I mean, yes, everything you've just said, yes. And I love how passionately you say it. You mentioned at the beginning the impact of you know, what was called quantitative easing, money creation, asset purchases by the Bank of England as the response to the financial crisis, where basically they realized they couldn't cut rates any lower. So central banks around the world decided to create new money, use it initially to purchase government bonds. So kind of longer term government bonds rather than just fiddling around with shorter, uh, shorter term ones, and then to purchase a bunch of other assets as well. And that pushes money into the financial system. Investors have more cash. They use it to invest in other assets. It pushes up the prices of, you know, equities, even housing, lots of these other things. And suddenly you find that if you're someone who has a lot of assets, which is generally the wealthy, you have become much wealthier. So we've had inflation, actually, for a long time. There's been this kind of sense in in economic circles amongst economists, they've been saying, oh, we're creating all this new money, but we haven't had any inflation. The consumer prices haven't gone up. A lot of countries, especially Europe, have been worried about deflation, consumer prices going down. And it seems to just have completely missed the fact that we have had massive inflation. It's just been inflation that has entirely benefited the wealthy. And now that we're seeing consumer price inflation, primarily being driven by fuel and energy, which we can talk about in a bit, that is primarily harming the poor. So quite clearly here, we have a very obvious sense that inflation is political and rising consumer prices, fine, are now making you know the headlines. But we've had very little, really, if you think about it, top level mainstream discussion about the impact of central bank asset purchases over the last decade, even though it's been in some ways you know, the biggest transformation of the kind of macroeconomic framework that governs the economy that we've seen in a, a very, very long time. 
Why do you think that that is? Why do you think, you know, we've suddenly realized inflation is here when actually we've had it for a long time. It's just been the wrong kind of inflation. Yeah, this is a very important point you make, right? The connection between the accumulation of wealth and money by the richest and inflation that we're seeing. Um, yeah, recently I went back to, I went to Oxford to do a master's degree for two years and um, they didn't talk at all about inflation and house prices. They generally assumed that inflation wasn't there. If you try to talk to them, economists, about there is inflation, it's just in house prices, they will all tell you that, well, inflation and house prices doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you every single person who has ever said that owns property in the family. <laughs> absolutely guarantee it, okay? And, you know, if you look at the statistics, you'll see that economics is the least social class diverse subject of any in US PhDs by a long way, by a significant way. Because if you're from a poor background and you have a top class degree from economics, you are not going to go into academia because you need to go into finance to make money to support your family. There's basically nobody from poor backgrounds who has advanced economics degrees because you'd be mad, right? Like, you know, if I... I study at LSE, then I graduate. Am I going to go into the city and make millions of pounds and support my family? And, and now my family is secure. Or am I going to go and spend seven years inverting matrices on a whiteboard at Oxford? You know, the reality is economics is an extremely non-diverse discipline in terms of social class, which is insane when you think about economics is fundamentally about wealth and money. You know, it's like, it's not physics. You know, if you drop a rich person and a poor person out of the window, they're going to fall at the same <laughs> speed. Like their, their lives economically are totally different. And yet here you have in Oxford, you know, 75 rich people wearing literally capes in castles discussing the economy. Well, they've, they've got no idea what's happening. So ordinary people know that there's been inflation because they've seen it in the basic cost of living and in house prices. And that is affecting their family. But I think it's important here to really nail down the fact that there's a very deep connection between the money accumulated by the richest and the inflation that we're seeing. Mm. You know, at the beginning of COVID, I knew a huge amount of money would be poured in. And I was obsessed with working out who is going to end up with this money. Because it's quite interesting, right? The money was initially paid to furloughed workers. But if you look at the furloughed workers, they were no better off afterwards than they were before because they've got this income from the government, but they've lost their wage, right? So who's got the money? So if you follow the wages back, you can look at the companies. Well, they're not paying the wages, but they've lost their incomes because they've been shut down. So the companies don't have it. So if you follow it back one step more, you see it's actually customers who accumulated money. But it's not all customers, right? If you're a poor or ordinary person mm. and your expenditure is largely rent, food, bills, you haven't saved any money because you still have to pay that. But if you're very, very rich and you have a lot of luxury spending, well, you can't do that anymore. You know what I mean? You can't go on an expensive holiday. You can't have an expensive, luxurious life during COVID. So during COVID, rich people started to accumulate a huge amount of money. And that's why I was able to say right at the beginning of COVID, when COVID ends as a health crisis, the economy is not just going to go back to normal. It's going to go back to normal with an enormous amount of cash accumulated by rich people. And it is truly enormous. The amount of money printed is £10,000 per adult. Okay, so if anybody's listening and they don't have £10,000 in their bank account more than they did pre-COVID, someone else has got your £10,000. And the statistics is showing it's overwhelmingly being held by richer people. So that means the top 10% are holding an extra £100,000 cash each. It's crazy. Of course, you're going to get inflation. So there's this study that's been done that I looked at um, during the pandemic, um, which showed that what you've just been saying, so that the wealthy have accumulated massive savings is obviously, you know, completely nutty true. But not only that, they actually were able to link the cash balances, the savings of the rich with the debt and the rent of the poor. So it's not even that someone else just has your £10,000. It's actually that they have your £10,000 and then they might be lending it back to you 
via a bank or financial institution, or they might use it to buy a property which you now rent from them. And that is then sucking even more wealth up from the bottom of society to the very top of society. And it's even worse in economies like our own, where, as you say, we have extremely high house prices, where we're super financialized, where you have this massive kind of rentier class that just kind of skim wealth off everyone else. And it seems like this is getting worse, right? So if you've got all these massive pots of savings, that means wealthy people are going to have more money. They're going to think, what am I going to do with that money? It's going to get eroded by inflation, so I need to invest it. Oh, I can, you know, invest it in property. That's a very safe bet. They sweep up more and more properties. And then suddenly you have, you know, even higher house prices, more people being forced to rent, unable to afford deposits, mortgages, whatever they need to get on the property ladder. And it becomes self-reinforcing. This kind of inequality becomes self-reinforcing. That's why in history, you know, as David Gravey used to write about, you had these like debt resets and wealth resets where like just debt would just get written off because people knew that this cycle of rising debt and rising inequality was toxic. Yeah, I I think it's important to realise that very wealthy people generate very large incomes from their wealth. A wealthy person will probably make 3 to 4% income from the wealth that they own. So let's take, just as a random example, Rishi Sunak, who has an estimated wealth of £200 million. He will be making every year 6 to £8 million just for getting out of bed, just from his wealth, right? So imagine you're Rishi Sunak and you make £7 million passive income a year. What are you going to do? Are you going to spend £7 million a year? Well, of course you're not, because £7 million is a ridiculous amount of money to spend in a year. You're going to spend half a million pounds a year, live a life of extreme luxury, and use the other £6.5 million to buy assets, which is homes that other people's kids might need. Or it's other people's mortgages, you know, that drives up debt. It pushes other people into debt. If these rich people are lending huge amounts of money, then it means you need to borrow huge amounts of money to buy a house. So it drives up house prices. And that means then, of course, ordinary people can't afford to buy houses. They have to rent longer. They have to save longer. So it exacerbates itself, you know. And I made my money by betting that we wouldn't deal with this and it would mean the 2008 crisis would be massively prolonged. I correctly predicted that that would be a very long and drawn out economic crisis. And then here we are making the exact same mistake again. We're allowing a crisis to massively enrich the richest. And that is going to mean, as an obvious consequence, ordinary people and ordinary families cannot access property, cannot buy assets, because you're competing with people who are phenomenally rich and can easily pay way more than you can. I want to just pick up on one phrase you mentioned there, which is passive income, because you must have seen this. There's all these videos going around on TikTok and like other sites where you've got like someone being like, I make, you know, five grand a month without getting out of bed. How do I do it? Passive income. I have this property and like, you know, I invest in this asset or whatever. And it's become this like really trendy thing. Like it's really weird. I've heard people who I know like have zero kind of understanding or well, zero interest in let's say financial markets or investment or politics or anything say, oh yeah, you know, the ideal for me is just to be able to like earn enough to generate a passive income. It's become this like weird trend. And I think it's just worth pointing out that like passive income is just extracting money from someone else, generally someone a lot poorer than you, right? There's another name you could give passive income, which is being rich. Yeah. That is how you generate passive income. You know, if you have if you have a wealth of one million pounds, you can generate a passive income of about thirty, forty thousand pounds, mm. which is enough, you know, to live on. But you need to have a million pounds to do it. You know, it's this is you know, people ask me, you know, I've got this YouTube channel where I talk about what's happening in the economy and sometimes I give financial advice and people always message me, how do I become rich? How do I get property? And 
you know, the truth is there's only one strategy nowadays, which is a really reliable way to be financially secure, to be rich, to get property, have rich parents. That works <laughs> every time. It works 100% of the time. But the truth is nothing else is reliable nowadays. You know, you know, people will be selling strategies, Bitcoin trading strategies mm. on the internet, but these things are super, super risky. The reality is, you know, if you can make even 10% return on your wealth, which is massive, if you start with £10,000, you're going to make £1,000. It's not going to change your life. You know, passive income realistically is something which is available to rich people and which is unavailable to ordinary people. Passive income is just, it's just a new trendy name for being rich. And the truth is, it is great. It works. If you can be rich, be rich. It's going to make you rich forever. But, you know, if you're not, it's not easy to get there. And if you are, make sure that you sign up to our Patreon to support this podcast and also subscribe to Tribute Magazine. Um, (laughs) And after that plug, a big part of the reason why I think many people on the left maybe didn't listen to you, Gary, and maybe were thinking, oh, well, whatever, inflation, who cares, is that historically, well, not actually historically, maybe over the last kind of 50 years, inflation has been this big buzzword for the right. And I had a piece out in Tribune and in Jacobin not long ago talking about kind of, um, you know, raising interest rates as class war because the big time that inflation came into and started to dominate our political discourse again was in the 1970s. You had the oil price spike, again, rising energy costs, driving inflation across the board. But you also had a strong union movement, which meant that the labor movement was able to demand wage increases in line with inflation. And that made itself reinforcing as well as to a certain extent protecting the, um, the incomes of most working class people. It was then when Thatcher and Reagan come in and the neoliberals, they have this idea of monetarism where they think, oh, well, inflation is always and everywhere. A monetary phenomenon will control the money supply by hiking up interest rates and that will bring down inflation. Now, this was always a bit disingenuous and most central bankers, you know, a lot of central bankers didn't really buy the whole idea behind monetarism about controlling the money supply. But what raising interest rates did do was just massacre the labor movement was, you know, massively increased unemployment, um, meant that the unions were in a much weaker bargaining position, created a recession, basically, that allowed the neoliberals to kind of destroy the strength of the trade union movement. And ever since then, you know, any kind of discussion of inflation really has often been framed in pretty reactionary terms. And the response to it has just been, oh, well, if inflation is high, we'll just raise interest rates. And then we know that if you raise interest rates, not only are you going to increase unemployment, you're going to raise the cost of debt servicing, which is going to really impact people, especially people with kind of high interest debt, which is more likely to be less well-off people. So what can we actually do? If we recognize now, finally, inflation is a problem and inflation is a political problem because it harms you know, working class people at the same time as asset price inflation benefits the wealthy. Some people are just going to say, right, okay, well, let's just raise interest rates, even on the left, let's raise interest rates to kind of and stop um, money creation to end the good times for the rich. And yet we know that that's going to have a regressive impact for everyone else. So what can we actually do about this? Okay, I think it's really important to understand very clearly what happened, right? At the very top level, we dealt with an enormous crisis by an enormous amount of money printing. And that money was accumulated by richer people. These are facts. These are like, this is verifiable, right? It's an enormous amount, 450 billion, 10,000 pounds per person. And I think there was this kind of moment because we did that and it enabled like really important schemes like the furlough scheme, which supported the people most in need. And we didn't see immediate inflation. It kind of created this moment in the discourse where people thought, well, maybe we can just keep doing this. Maybe we can just print money to fund all of the things that we need. (laughs) And I think that was 
realistically, that was always quite naive. That was always going to be quite naive. And I was sort of trying to ring the bell early on saying, look, be careful with this, you know, because sure, if you print money, you can fund loads of things in the short term, but that money is going to end up somewhere. And if that money ends up with the rich, then you will inevitably see big increases in inequality and inflation. You know, I wrote a really good article for Open Democracy saying exactly this. So if people want to know in detail what I think, they should read that. We'll put a link in the description. Yeah, I think if you, um, if you understand what's happened, then you understand the problem. The problem is that rich people have enormous amounts of cash, okay? And the way that you fix giving rich people enormous amounts of cash is by taking enormous amounts of cash from rich people. That is the only way we can go back to a situation where the rich don't have enormous amounts of cash. But that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're raising interest rates. So what that means is debtors will then pay more interest to people who have cash. Well, who are the debtors? At the moment, it's primarily the government, but it's also people with mortgages. So we create a problem by giving huge amounts of printed cash to the rich. And now we're trying to fix the problem by making the government pay more interest to the rich, right? It's, it's not going to work. It's, it's obviously not going to work. And there's, there's this phenomenal naivety about money and what's happening. And I think so many people just simply do not realise that the rich accumulated enormous amounts of cash during COVID. And you can't really blame them because if you're an ordinary person and some super rich guy who lives 10 minutes from you has accumulated 100 grand during COVID, how are you going to know? But people need to be aware that this is what has happened. And this is at the heart of the problem with inflation. And it's going to get much, much, much worse. I think inflation in CPI will eventually level off and come down. But we will move to a situation where basic goods and services are permanently higher Mm. relative to your wage. And I think property and assets are going to continue to go through the roof because we're not taking this money out of the system. This money is staying with the rich people. And then they're going to just use that money to keep buying assets from each other and buying assets from ordinary people. So if if you don't take that money out of the system, I honestly think you're going to see London property double from here. I think that is what will happen. And the problem is we're not going to take that money out of the system because because nobody's talking about it. And, And it's so important that there is more discussion in the discourse about the enormous amounts of cash accumulated with rich people. I think what happened was inflation became sort of a byword for austerity. Mm. We're like, we can't talk about inflation because they'll do austerity. But there is an alternative, which we never discuss, which is tax rich people. You know, as long as that is off the table, we will not see realistic improvement. I'm sorry, but it's, it's not possible. Mm. And, you know, I'm not just saying this. I've been betting on this for 15 years and I've made millions of pounds doing it. If you do not tax rich people, then they will take all of the assets of society. Assets will become totally unaffordable for ordinary people and you will bankrupt the middle class. That is, that is what happens if you give everything to the rich. And you can only stop that by seriously thinking about how do we tax rich people. That's what we have to do. There is no alternative. Let's talk about, as well, strategic price controls. What is your view on this? Because we had this article that came out from Isabella Waver, a great article in The Guardian not long ago, saying, look, after the Second World War, we had price controls for certain goods, and that worked. And everyone went absolutely mad. Economists went absolutely mad. You can't have price controls. It'll just create shortages. It will like kind of um, make the problem much worse. And then a load of economists from the global south come in and say, actually, there are a lot of places where we already have a system of certain kinds of price controls. It works in various different ways. Here's how you, know, you can avoid these problems around shortages and uh, kind of gridlocks in supply chains and those sorts of things. Is this an option? Or are the economists right to be really angry that this was even mooted? My instinct is that it's a little bit naive. You need to have a full discussion, right? So if you're going to put price controls on energy, for example, how do we then prevent energy companies from restricting supply at this lower level? Perhaps they'll provide significantly less. So are we, do we then mandate quantity as well as price? In which case, you're basically 
seizing the energy companies. Okay, do you want to seize the energy companies? Is that Why what not? you want to do? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, if that's realistically what you're saying, then are we going to talk about that? Is that are you going to seize the energy companies? Then you need to say, okay, well, alternatively, what are you going to do? Are you going to bring in a rationing system? Mm. You know, is that is that what you're going to do? Because if you want to permanently have higher demand and supply, well, who gets it? You know, how do we determine who gets it? Okay, well, what if you bring in a price controls and it just means the rich start consuming a crap ton of energy? And, it, and you know. You know, because they will be able to, they, you know, they are the people who can afford it. You know, what frustrates me is we continually dance around this issue of the problem is the rich have a huge amount of money. It's this sort of shibboleth. It's this thing we cannot discuss, which is, can we actually tax these people? How can we tax these people? You know, if we continually try to do the best thing we possibly can without ever taxing the rich people, the economy will be destroyed in the long run. And as I say, I'm not just saying that. I bet on it every year and I make a huge amount of money betting the economy will be a disaster because we will never tax rich people. If you just rely on price controls without dealing with the problem of taxing rich people, in the long run, it will not work. And yeah. you, will, you will continue to see economic disaster. If somebody comes in with cancer and you, you heal, you cure their cold, they still got cancer. If we don't deal with a situation where the richest people in society pay no tax, the economy will die. I, I remember when I wrote about this and said that alongside price controls, you'd need basically some form of public ownership, massive investment in decarbonizing the energy system, something along the lines of a national food service where you'd be able to provide basic essentials to people. And that would be, you know, limited in terms of quantity. So, yeah, I mean, I think the only way it would work is if you radically transformed the economy. And obviously, we're not going to see that happen over the short term. But there's also this problem with the tax argument, which is that the wealthy are always going to have the means and the incentive to avoid and evade tax on a scale that is just, you know, completely off the charts. And that's not going to change. And the people in power don't have the incentive to clamp down on this because they're doing it themselves. We've seen this with Russia, right? Like, oh, we need to like punish the oligarchs. But actually, a lot of the people in power know that if they start really pushing for transparency in terms of the financial flows that are coming into and out of the city. That's not something that you can just do for the, you know, the people who are now the bad guys. If you insist on transparency, that's transparency for everyone. And then suddenly it becomes much more difficult to actually avoid and evade tax and smuggle, you know, the very profitable venture of like helping warlords and drug dealers and dictators hide their cash offshore in London's network of secrecy jurisdictions. So how do we tackle this problem of tax avoidance and evasion? Do we need more money for enforcement? Do we need, you know, big campaigns? Like, can we use actually this moment around Russia to actually say, let's start really pushing for transparency here to get the oligarchs? Oh, and by the way, everyone else. The first question you're asking is, is it possible to stop the rich from evading taxes? And the answer is 100% yes. I mean, look what's happening now. We're basically seizing the assets of Russian billionaires. That's possible, right? You can literally seize these people's assets. Of course, it's possible, you know. We can send a man to the moon. We, we can make rich people pay their taxes. You, you need to fund its enforcement, but you can do it. Of course, it's possible. The question is, why don't we do it? And you've kind of answered that question yourself, you know. The current chancellor is worth £200 million. His father-in-law is a billionaire. You know, David Cameron made £10 million within a couple of years of leaving office. You know, Tony Blair is significantly richer than that. You know, the people who are in charge are extraordinarily wealthy people. So... Do they want to dismantle a system which completely protects the wealth of extraordinarily wealthy people? No, they don't. You know, it has to come. It has to come from us and from ordinary people. You know, that, that's why, you know, initially I was writing a lot of articles. I wrote for The Guardian and stuff like this. But it was just being read by the kind of people who read economics articles in The Guardian, you know, mm. who are not the people being hurt. That's why I've switched to a YouTube 
because it's ordinary people are being hurt by this and they need to be involved in the push against it. Because the truth is, you know, the people who talk about economics, whether that be in the media or in finance or in government, they're generally wealthy people and they're not, they're not incentivized to change this and they're not the people who are being hurt by it. So I think it, what I'm trying to do is communicate to you and educate ordinary people to say, look, if you don't get together and do something seriously to force the government to seriously stop tax evasion, it's going to stop your kids from getting homes and, and secure financial lives. And that is why it's so important that you and everyone that you know subscribes to Gary's YouTube channel and also <laughs> to this podcast, of course. One final thing before we, uh, before we sign off. We're going to see a lot of kind of blitz spirit uh, invoked by politicians over the next you know, few months and potentially even years saying rising prices are the price that you have to pay for saving Ukraine, basically. This is quite clearly very self-serving, but is it actively bullshit? Listen, every time you hear that, every time anybody listening hears that, I want you to hear biggest ever single year increase in millionaire and billionaire wealth in the history of this country. The average billionaire increased their wealth by £630 million in the first one year of COVID. 22% single year increase in wealth of the top 250 richest individuals in this country. Okay, so are we all in this together? Are we all suffering together here? This is not a case of we're all contributing, but the poor feel it more. The rich are actively profiting enormously, more than they ever have before. So if you... If you hear that on the TV or in a newspaper, ask yourself, is this radio station owned by a billionaire? Is this newspaper <laughs> owned by a billionaire? Are these guys contributing or are they getting richer? We, we, you cannot accept a system where ordinary people suffer, cannot afford to feed their families, heat their homes, and the rich are making not just ordinary profits, seven times more than they would ordinarily make. The biggest ever single year increase in wealth. This is not, we're all in it together. This is ordinary people being robbed blind by the rich and super rich. Gary, on that note, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.